1: Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, housing plan. The NDP government is promising to introduce a flipping tax, legalize secondary suites, and promise more density in single-family neighborhoods. Will this have any impact on affordability? Plus, was the weekend bus attack in Syria inspired by ISIS ideology? We'll have the latest. And rage against the machine should we pause further development into artificial intelligence for the sake of society. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today, Premier David Eby and Housing Minister of Ikela, uh, promised to overhaul BC's housing rules. What's that mean? Well, that means BC will legalize all secondary suites, introduce a flipping tax, and hike density on single-family lots. Premier David Eby also promised a crackdown on rule-breaking short-term rentals, rental operators as well. Take a listen from his press conference this morning.
2: We're going to open more homes faster. Single-family detached homes are out of reach for many middle-class people. And one or two bedroom condos often don't meet the needs of growing families. Family-friendly neighborhoods need more small-scale, multi-unit homes. It's what some call missing middle homes. They're the duplexes, the triplexes, and the townhomes, ones that have room young families need for their kids and for their pets. And the opportunities many seniors are looking for to downsize in their own neighborhoods as well, and maybe even have their kids and grandkids living next door. Our plan will create a lot more of these middle-class homes through provincial zoning rules, faster permitting, less red tape, and more incentives.
1: That was uh, Premier David Eby this morning. Now, debate over uh, missing middle housing, uh, even on this show and many other programs on NW, can be divisive at times. Uh, where those who do not want to see changes to single-family home neighbourhoods, many proponents say it's a creative solution that will make owning a home uh, much more attainable, as the Premier articulated uh, uh, that. Other opponents have said, look, there's parking issues, higher density may destroy a character of a neighbourhood. So lots to talk about in regards to this uh, announcement. Joining the Premier today was Ravi Kehlam, BC's Housing Minister. He joins us now. Minister, thank you for speaking to us today.
3: Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me.
1: So is is this the big announcement you had promised in regards to changes, or are we going to be hearing uh, of more announcements uh, moving forward in regards to uh, your housing plan?
3: Well, this is a pretty comprehensive plan, and you highlighted some of the pieces in it, uh, and there's much more. Uh, to the core, uh, the issue around small-scale multi-units, uh, or some people call it missing middle, um, you know, moving to... Single dwelling lots to be able to have up to four units on larger lots is, is a significant shift uh, for us here in the province. But, Jazz, you heard this on your show multiple times, and I hear it in my community all the time. Seniors worried about how their grandkids are going to be, you know, be able to be raised closer to them, and young families saying we can't stay in British Columbia anymore, you know, like the housing has just become too unaffordable. And so this shift will allow for more affordable type of units, more attainable units being built in communities throughout the province.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's just go through some of the uh, sort of specific issues. Uh, We've heard about a flipping tax. Any details in regards to that flipping tax and when uh, you'll be introducing it?
3: Well, the the flipping tax will be coming later this year, and uh, it's going to be focused on those that buy property uh, and only to hold on to it, to flip it, to make a profit. And we know some, for example, builders, they'll buy a house and they'll fix it, uh, you know, add some units and then sell it. That's not who we're targeting. That's not who we're targeting. We're targeting those that, that should buy the property to hold in order to make money. And, and you know, before, it used to be individuals coming to us and saying, you guys got to take action here. Now we've got people in the development community coming to us and saying, this is getting out of hand. I can't even get in and build because somebody else bought it just to make it a a quick profit to flip later. So it's become an issue uh, across the stream for individuals as well as for builders who are in the game to actually build housing.
1: So I just want to clarify this. This is somebody quickly buying a single family home, uh, making some cosmetic changes and flipping it, or is this a question of somebody buying uh, a condominium that hasn't been built yet, um, but they, they, they say they'll purchase it. And then they just flip that piece of paper. Is it, or is it both?
3: Well, it's potentially both. I mean, our concern isn't people who uh, buy something and do uh, upgrades to the housing. Uh, it's That's not our main focus here. You know, we want people to buy property and fix it up and add units uh, and, and put it on the market. The big concern is people that are buying it knowing that there's going to be uh, a Costco coming nearby or whatever, or just holding property for the sake of it. Mm-hmm. We want these housing units to be for people that actually want to live and raise their families in.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, the other issue has been greater density in single family neighborhoods. I recall once I we ran a segment on this show, uh, whether or not there should be any single family Uh, home designation anymore Uh, and there's a lot of pushback and and there's lots of families raising their kids or have raised kids in a single family neighborhood but there has been of course broader talk about is there a need for single family neighborhood zoning anymore in vancouver at least on paper you can there's been talk about building up to six units per lot i do believe in your announcement today it's going to be up to four units uh, a lot is that is that just i want a, a correction on that is that true
3: uh, th- that's correct, adjust, uh, but there's, there's two things that are important. One, the single-family home is not dead, uh, and I got asked this earlier today. As long as people want them and they can afford them, the market will continue to make them for people. Uh, the challenge is, is if you say a house comes down and it must be that, mm-hmm. what happens is those people that are looking to buy simply can't afford the land value and the added construction cost. So what we're saying is now you can build up to four, those houses may still come back as single dwelling, Mm -hmm. or they may come back as four units so that more families can be able to afford it.
1: But if I, as a developer, went in and let's say there's 12 single-family homes and six of them happen to be on sale, I purchase them and then want to build, you know, four units per lot, uh, there is a cultural uh, and aesthetic shift to that neighbourhood, is there not?
3: Well, normally if you see somebody buying 12 lots, they're upzoning for significantly more housing than just a couple of units on each parcel. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is normally the case where you'll see, for example, we have a woman in our community, Kathleen. uh, She ended up taking her home that she lived in for 35, 40 years and turning it into four units. Now she lives on the ground floor. She has her kids living in each of the individual units, raising their kids. And so she got to use her own land Mm -hmm. to be able to house her entire family in one location so we're going to see probably more of that where people are saying you know what why not or uh, you know in some cases seniors saying you know what i'm going to build this i'm going to build a rental unit because i'm property rich but uh financially i don't have the dollars now i've got some streams of income that come from the other units so there's going to be creative solutions we've seen come up we're not the only jurisdiction that's done it we are the first one in canada to go this way but california uh, Oregon, Washington State, uh, you know, New Zealand, many other jurisdictions are going in this way. It just gives more options on the land and the market will decide what is the most feasible thing uh, on that lot. A couple
1: more questions. Uh, the secondary suite conversation today, uh, there are many communities that have legalized suites. People have the opportunity to legalize suites. They do pay extra. But there are many municipalities uh, that still prefer not to, ha- to have secondary suites, number one. Secondly, there are communities... Where uh, even though suites are legalized, they're not necessarily um, being utilized. Some neighborhoods prefer not. Um, do you worry at all, A, in regards to some of the more practical problems that sometimes this, this can lead to, A, parking issues in neighborhoods and a culture that once again doesn't want rentals in, in traditionally single-family neighborhoods?
3: Well, I would say the parking side of things, you know, of course, we're always going to find ways to navigate that, and we can navigate that and solve the solutions for that. But the the fundamental issue we have is we're in a housing crisis. We have averaging 100,000 people coming to British Columbia over the last three years each year, uh, and, and we don't have enough housing stock. And if you've got communities where they've got rental units there, but the community won't let people live in them, we have a fundamental problem. We've taken action on stratas, and now we're going to be able to make sure that those additional units that are sitting there empty because of a rule now can be housed with people, and and that's what we have to do in this type of housing crisis. Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, When can we expect uh, new tools to come for municipalities in regards to dealing with short-term rentals, which uh, I think most people would assume are Airbnbs, and, and how much of a challenge or problem have they been?
3: Well, uh, this fall is when we're targeting to bring that legislation in. We've heard a mix of reviews. And then just to be uh, forthright, I actually have stayed in there, but when you look at policy in housing and you see more and more housing units being bought up and then sitting sometimes empty half the year uh, because they're only used for uh, the short-term rentals, uh, that's a real problem. And then you have people who don't have housing. And so we've heard from local government that it's hard to enforce bylaws We've heard from some tourism-related communities who are like, "Whoa, we've actually gone overboard, and now we can't. We don't have housing for the workers to be able to support the tourism activity in the community." And so, we're looking at uh, solutions to get more housing back into the housing market, but at the same time, supporting communities to enforce bylaws. I had a meeting with the minister from Quebec. Uh, They've got some legislation in place, but they are having some challenges. So we're learning from other jurisdictions, but that is expected to come to fall.
1: Will that be an outright ban on Airbnbs?
3: It won't be an outright ban uh, because we understand that uh, they they play a role in communities, certainly tourism-related communities, but certainly looking at how we can scale that to uh, ensure that we have housing available for the public, but also understand that we need some flexibility in communities that, uh, that depend on, on tourism more so than anything else.
1: Final question to you Are you ready for the onslaught? There's those who are going to say this is the right thing, this is the right way to go in regards to housing because of the housing crisis, as you say. And are those who are going to say, you know what, you're destroying traditional neighborhoods. Are you ready for that conversation?
3: Well, we are. We've launched the strategy, and, uh, and, uh, and we believe this is the path we have to take as a, as a province to ensure that young people can continue to stay in British Columbia. I mean, fundamentally, as I said already, if a house gets torn down, uh, there's uh, an option right now. And that option is you must build a single dwelling home. And that sometimes, and actually often, is way too pricey for anyone to buy. And so now there's options. They can uh, still build a single dwelling home. That might be the case in some communities. But now they have the option to build more units, and which will be more attainable for certainly young families to get into their first home.
1: Minister, thank you for your time today.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me, and stay safe.
1: Well, an attack on a transit bus in Surrey over the weekend is being treated as terrorism after the RCMP's National Security Police took over the investigation. Abdul Aziz Kawam uh, was initially charged with attempted murder for allegedly slashing a bus passenger's throat on Saturday morning. But prosecutors, we are told now, added four counts of terrorism today. A second victim was also allegedly assaulted with a knife. The charges allege the attacks were carried out for the so-called Islamic State. A kitchen knife, uh, based on reports uh, over the weekend, was seen on the sidewalk at uh, at the incident. It's surrounded by orange traffic cones, and police did confirm to uh, confirm from investigators that they believe that was the weapon used in the attack. Uh, joining me now is John Daly, former host of CKW's Back on the Beat. He's been a long time invest- investigative and crime reporter for Global News as well. John, thank you for joining us today. Good to be here. Uh, your thoughts on all of this? I understand you've been reading over some of the court documents. Uh, you know, you've covered this for a very long time. You've covered crime in this city. I know you've covered some very high-profile cases involving national security as well. Uh, what are your thoughts on this issue right now?
4: Well, number one, Jazz, this is exceedingly rare. In all my experience, I've only covered two terrorism cases in Canada. Uh, One, the the notorious one, the bomb, uh, alleged pressure cooker bomb at the legislature, Mm -hmm. the Nuttall and Karodi case, which, uh, you know, they they ended up getting uh, a directed order uh, released from jail, even though the jury found them guilty. The judge said that they were entrapped, and now they are charging uh, the police and the prosecution service um, in a civil matter, mm-hmm. so that that's interesting. The only the one before that was a fascinating case uh, in in South Burnaby. Hasi Bula Yusofa, uh was charged with one count of commit act of murder for the benefit of a terrorist group, uh, having traveled to Syria to join Islamist fighters. Mm. And I don't think they ever found him. In fact, I think he got murdered uh, in Syria. In any event, those are the... So, number one, this is really rare. Number two, I think it's a really good thing that uh, Inset, which is the RCMP's Integrated National Security Enforcement Team, is handling it because they've laid these charges under Section 83.2 of the Criminal Code of Canada, which is the terrorism provision. And it says uh, anybody who commits an indictable offense uh, under this uh, at or for a terrorist group is liable to life in prison so instantly we've got life in prison on all counts on all four counts and it may bring a reverse onus for bail it allows uh, inset to go for search warrants for electronic uh, communication devices servers uh, even websites and orders to remove terrorist postings. so i have a funny feeling they're going to drill a big hole in this thing to determine uh, whether or not this person actually had any Contact, which I think is the pivotal thing here, Jess. Hmm. Was this guy directed to do this, or did he just do it on his own? Because he, you know, he was on some kooky websites and, and decided to do it. Now, of course, he's innocent until proven guilty. Where I'm talking as if he, you know, if but if he is found to have committed these offenses, mm-hmm. the question is, did he do it at the direction of somebody? In which case, it's a lot scarier. You know, right now the terrorist threat level in Canada is at medium, and it's been at medium for a long time. Uh, but if we find out that people are actually reaching into Canada and finding uh, young men, now this guy's born in 95, so what is he, 28 or 29, mm-hmm. uh, and encouraging them to do horrible things. And we do know that uh, in the past, uh, Al-Qaeda, for example, after the nuddle Karodi thing, issued a statement saying, do simple acts, you know, like do simple things like slashing people's throats. Mm-hmm. So you know i it, mean who knows
1: i i think you raised a couple of points there when you look at uh, al qaeda and its ability to uh, organize uh the 911 attacks uh it has uh provided uh moral guidance to Uh, guidance to other organizations uh, around the world. Yeah, money as well. I mean, uh, when I lived in India, I covered the attack on the Taj Hotel that was sustained over four Mm. or five days. In that case, it was different because uh, they all had come in from Pakistan, but a similar ideology at its core. Um, And those are well organized and they had people giving them guidance. They use GPS and funding as well. Uh, But what we've also seen in this country is these lone individuals were on the internet, following um, this ideology, uh, they become radicalized on their own or they're isolated. And in many cases, these various various terrorist groups for the last 25 years have slowly, uh, they've lost members, they, the funding has dried up, the US and the West generally have been going up against them in a very aggressive manner. Oh, yeah. So when you start very asking definitely. them to uh, be involved in, in isolated incidents, because ultimately terrorism is about getting as much attention as you can. And, mm-hmm. and, I'm, and it's not about doing something in the suburbs of Vancouver. You want to be doing it in New York or the Londons or the Parises or big centers. Uh, But for us here locally, we've seen this before in this country where young men have been radicalized on their own or have been isolated in some cases, and they have these lone uh, attacks on their own. And it doesn't have to be Al-Qaeda or ideology. It can be a different type of ideology, as we've seen gunmen in the United States as well. It's these men, these younger men, who somehow are either isolated, they're loners, and they get radicalized.
4: Totally. And uh, that's, that's the real danger, frankly. And uh, we'll beg to see whether or not uh, INSET comes up with any connections, any hard connections to any uh, motivating groups. Uh, you know, did this guy have a handler? If, in fact, he committed these crimes uh, and committed these crimes on behalf of ISIS, mm-hmm. was there somebody particularly encouraging him? Or was he, as you say, self-motivated, as so often we see? But it is troubling, even at that level, that that there are individuals who are uh, being, you know, being essentially brainwashed to do extremely violent things uh, in the name of, uh, you know, the Islamic State.
1: No, you're absolutely right. And I, I'm, uh, the fact that we've seen charges so quickly uh, and the yeah. raised to that point, I mean, the incident happened over the weekend, and already uh, there was a national issue here, uh, would mm-hmm. also tell us that they probably were, I'm not sure they were aware of the individual, but they have to be aware of uh, something. or s- Something has tipped them off pretty quickly to the point where there's charges already on a Monday.
4: Well, the indications are that he said some things to the transit cops. He said some hmm. things that made them call. So obviously he's said something out loud, allegedly, uh, to the police, which brought in inset. And, you know, inset right now, I'm sure, is going through his house and they're going through his computers and his uh, tablets and any gadgets, any phones he's got. And they'll drill a hole in this. I've got a lot of confidence in Inset. Actually, I think they do a pretty good job. So, you know, if there if there is somebody else to be charged, they'll they'll be hunted down. And if they can find them, they'll be charged. Yeah,
1: John. Thanks for your time today, my friend.
4: My pleasure. Anytime, John.
1: Many, many times when we're uh, covering issues when it comes to City Hall, we often uh, use that term back to basics. It's one that we used prior to uh, last uh, year's civic election and judging by uh, the outcome here in Vancouver, one would argue that's exactly where Vancouver voters were at. And when we say back to basics, uh, we talk about community centres, uh, potholes, garbage pickup. I'm oversimplifying things a little bit, but there's an ongoing conversation about what is the role of civic government and can certain uh, programs and issues be left to senior levels of government well the city of vancouver says it's establishing a mayor's budget task force aimed at going through spending with a fine-tooth comb joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, the mayor's task force is sarah kirby young who is of course an abc vancouver councillor uh, councillor young thank you for joining us
0: good afternoon Jeff. how are you
1: i'm doing very well uh, why this need for this task force
0: well, I think we're facing unprecedented financial challenges. We're seeing it for governments at all levels and municipalities, particularly, who are, bear the brunt of delivering a lot of the infrastructure that supports livability in the city and those services that impact your day quality of life, or not, um, or your quali- or your day-to-day quality of life in a not so great way. If your garbage is not picked up consistently, or if there's potholes on the road, um, like you said, or if we don't have the ability to do our community centers at the rate that they need, um, and so. Uh, this was a commitment that we made during the campaign to really focus on line item budgets. Mm-hmm. And so, Mayor, uh, what Mayor Sim announced today uh, was a volunteer, industry led, third party expert force with a mandate to review both the city's operating and capital budgets and to go through those in
1: um, some would argue that's what we elect people like you to uh, do, uh, which is to go through the budget and say, this is the priority. This is our sense of where citizens want us to go. Why do you need uh, a separate uh, private sector uh, task force?
0: Yeah, see, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, the ultimate decision makers are councillors themselves. And uh, we are hired to be representatives of the people, not necessarily to be experts in every specific field. We have engineers that advise us, for example, on uh, the best way to build the Broadway subway um, and a number of other projects, how to advance our gray and green infrastructure in terms of dealing with climate change and responding to that. And, we've heard advice and we have a, an opportunity here to do the same with about half a dozen individuals who have a depth of expertise in uh, capital and operating allocations and strategies. And so this, I would say, is really a very uh, strategic look at uh, is the city for example putting enough uh, funding into infrastructure renewal what levels of concern do we have around deferred maintenance we saw for example the side of the aquatic center fell off Um, I think that that really shocked and stood out for a lot of people how could a city like Vancouver um, you know have a facility where literally um, the side of the building is collapsing and so I think that that level of expertise can help to guide us and bring us forward. I think it's always a good thing to bring in different perspectives and different voices. And this is a very diverse task force. We've got individuals who have deep deep expertise in the financial markets. And we've got folks like um, former Deputy Premier Joy McVale, who is going to be serving um, as an advisor to this group and sort of an onlooker um, throughout the process, who's held, you would know, um, it was a Vancouver MLA multiple different cabinet portfolios. So I think that the residents of Vancouver and businesses Mm -hmm. um, who are working hard to earn their money – Property taxes the City of Vancouver deserve us to do a thorough a dive that we can go into how
1: it's being spent. Is it, is it possible to do a dive when you're not including the Vancouver Park Board, uh, the Vancouver Public Library, and most importantly, the Vancouver Police Department, which is the biggest line item in your budget? And I'm not saying, uh, let's not even forget about cutting or anything like that. I'm just saying, shouldn't that also be part of the review just because there may be ways to do things efficiently with the dollars they already get? Uh, shouldn't they have been a part of that review?
0: Yeah, well, let's take those one by one. Uh, the part board and the libraries are actually not the largest percentage of the city of Vancouver's budget. The part board, is at any given year, is about 120, 130 million dollars. It makes about half of that back revenue in, in and Um But their capital budgets certainly are part of the city of Vancouver, and those are allocated by council. And this review will cover capital um, with respect to the library. Again, I think. Arguably, we identify they have a separate uh, board, so they have a different governance structure. Um, But again, relatively small budget uh, in terms of the city. Um, The majority of it is staff and lights and just keeping those libraries open. So we think where we see the bigger opportunity is in the lion's share of the $1.9 billion budget. Um, And the Vancouver Police Department, unlike city Department, uh, except for Fire and Rescue Services, um, has its own third-party operational review conducted. To determine what the appropriate level of staffing is to support public safety for a city of our size, Vancouver Fire has done that too, and council has relied on those external reviews from both of those public safety departments in terms of supporting the budgets. Mm-hmm. Um, but and the same for city departments, we have never had. Party review uh, like this of our internal city of Vancouver departments.
1: Uh, I know no city wants to uh, bring in a 10.7% property tax increase, but you fundamentally cannot bring in a 10.7% property tax increase next year. I mean, even the first one year is is quite a stretch. I mean, a resident should expect if there is going to be an increase, a significantly uh, smaller one next year compared to what they've had to deal with now.
0: Well, that's certainly the hope. I mean, uh, we, we were pretty clear when that uh, Decision was made and it was one that was not taken lightly that increases like that one can't become the norm. It's not sustainable for people. Um, but we also need to get into the books and determine um, why it needed to be that large. It was very difficult to get the line items level of detail that was needed in a very short time as a new council that we had uh, to do that level of uh, analysis and so over the next six months because this task force will do its work looking at the line item budget and they mm-hmm. will deliver that by october that will very much help to inform the next budget um, with hopefully the opportunity to identify uh, opportunities either for efficiencies new revenues or something that can alleviate that burden on the taxpayer.
1: would that also include layoffs of vancouver city staff if they, if, they, if this task force feels that there are too many public servants and is, is your council ready to lay people off or give the direction to lay people off if required?
5: I think
0: the focus is really on optimizing, on uh, optimizing actual service delivery. Um, and so for example, lots of conversations Some municipalities uh, don't pick up their organics in the winter time every week, like Vancouver does. They do it every two weeks because it's based on analysis in terms of how patterns change. Um, and then that would, in turn, enable us to redeploy some of those staff into other things where we're underserved, such as delivering on overdue curb cuts or potholes. So I think it's it's not about um, the staff. It's about are we using the staff to the most effective way possible to deliver the results for residents.
1: Uh, Councillor uh, Kirby Young, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Today, Premier David Eby and Housing Minister Ravi Kailan held a pretty big press conference where they promised to overhaul BC's housing rules. Those rules including um, legalizing all secondary suites in many communities throughout British Columbia. They also promised to hike density in uh, single-family lots. Uh, Premier uh, David Eby also promised a crackdown on rule-breaking short-term rental operators as well, Airbnb specifically, and also promised to introduce a flipping tax uh, this fall. Take a listen.
2: This plan will build a housing market that works for people and not for speculators. One of the major factors in high BC real estate prices is house flipping. That's when a person buys a property intel- intending to sell it soon after for a profit. This drives up prices in that neighborhood and it means that families looking for a place to live aren't competing with other families, they're complete- competing with speculators to buy a home. That's why we'll crack down on this practice by introducing a tax on the proceeds of those sales. For those thinking about buying a house to flip it, think again. For those planning to flip a home they own, the tax is coming. This is your warning.
1: (laughs) There you go. A warning from the Premier. Well, Joining us now is Michael Geller, President of the Geller Group. He's an architect planner and real estate consultant as well. Good afternoon, Michael.
6: Good afternoon, Jazz.
1: I had a pretty fun conversation with the Housing Minister uh, at 3 o'clock. Interesting conversation. Uh, Your thoughts on all of this. Uh, Will this help us get there, whatever that definition of affordability might be does this help us get 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 us there
6: oh i think it could i mean i think it is quite an exciting announcement i mean there's a lot of things in it and there's a lot of good ideas but as you hinted at just before the news break uh we used to say god is in the details unfortunately we often say devil is in the details as well and so to some degree, I think it will be important to work out a lot of the details related to each of these initiatives. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, right now, uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, the, the government's anti-flipping tax, no details there. Uh, in regards to uh, tools they plan to give to municipalities to deal with short-term Airbnbs, no details there. Uh, secondary suites, uh, no specific details there. Uh, especially the $40,000 they say what they want a loan to homeowners, a, forg- a forgivable loan, no details there yet. And, of course, no specific details in regards to the, the missing middle zoning, as they call it, for greater density. Let's go through each one. Uh, you and I have talked about this before. Vancouver pretty much already has this in regards to the development of – you can develop four units on a single uh, lot, a single-family lot. Uh, your sense of how you think this will play out in other parts of the lower mainland and other parts of the province?
6: Well, one of the details that's important on the uh, being allowed to build four homes on one lot is do you also have to give money to the municipality because they've deemed that your land value has increased and so they want a percentage of that as a contribution, or are you obligated to create an affordable rental unit and then put some form of legal agreement on the title? So I'm not saying those are necessarily bad things. But if you do have to give too much money to the government, then that new housing is not going to be that affordable. And that's one of the criticisms about what's happening in Vancouver, and it would apply elsewhere. Similarly, just the form of a legal agreement for a below-market unit. Again, in principle, it's a good idea, but just drafting and enforcing those agreements can become problematic. But in principle, I support the idea. So
1: if when they bring in this legislation, does it not automatically, uh, you know, just uh, mean my property, your property, any property, automatically the price rises on that if, if we're able to put four units on it? Haven't we already pretty much lived to the value of that land automatically when they bring in a provincial legislation?
6: Well, that's certainly what they believe has is happening in Vancouver, and as a result, the city has said we either want you to give a, a what we call a community amenity contribution mm-hmm. equal to approximately seventy-five percent of the increase in value. So, if it's gone from two million to two point eight million dollars, they'll be looking for uh, six million six hundred thousand dollars or a percentage of that. Or you could create an affordable unit, which is a great idea, except that comes with some limitations in terms of how you do it. But in principle, the idea of allowing some gentle densification of single-family lots, I think, is a good idea. Mm-hmm.
1: A gentle densification, I guess, is the is the right thing. I mean, there is a cultural and generational fight here, is there not, in regards to those who think single-family home. designated areas should be preserved in some way. And those who say, look, those days are long gone, and we've got to focus more on the missing middle, as they say.
6: Yes. Well, I'll put it this way. We haven't seen a lot of protests in Vancouver since the city has said you're allowed three homes on each lot. Mm -hmm. And that's been the case for the last few years, where in Vancouver it was legal to have the principal dwelling, a secondary suite in the basement, and a laneway house all with relatively little parking. And, uh, you know, so far it does seem to be working, except for the fact that oftentimes getting approval for that laneway house doesn't take a matter of days or weeks. Sometimes it takes many, many months and even years. Mm -hmm. So that's the other detail that one is obviously going to be concerned about with respect to these proposals.
1: What role does the federal government have to play in all of this in your mind?
6: Well, certainly one of the announcements, which I find very appealing, is a lot more money for supportive housing. Uh, There's a former planner developer who's been in the newspapers lately saying, you know, all new developments should have 50% affordable housing. Well, it's a lovely idea. It's completely impractical unless the province and the federal government are prepared to make subsidy dollars available for either the construction or the ongoing operation of the more affordable units. So I would hope, I mean, one of my colleagues said the federal government seems to be missing in action when it comes to the housing file, and that certainly was evident after the budget announcement. I mean, I think people should be giving full marks to the provincial government for recognizing the severity of the crisis that we are facing, because the reality is Too many people are having a very, very difficult time. Mm -hmm. One of the initiatives that I find intriguing, Jazz, is the idea of a $40,000 loan, Mm -hmm. 50% of which would be forgiven. In other words, a $20,000 grant to someone who's going to renovate their house to create a a, a basement suite. I think that's a great idea, again— We'll need to see what the rules are. Uh, Is there a minimum ceiling height in that suite? Uh, Do you have to have certain uh, fire safety measures and so forth? But the only part of it that is a detail, which they did give us, is you only get that $20,000 grant if you agree to rent that suite below market. And so far it isn't clear. Is it 5%, 10%, 20% below market? Mm -hmm. And what is market for a minimum five years? So, again... There's some complications there, but I think some people will find that an attractive proposition.
1: I, I sometimes find the city of Vancouver itself as an island unto itself. These the totality of these changes, uh, and you deal with municipal governments in your role as an architect, a planner, and a real estate consultant, so you know it well. How do you think this is going to be accepted by other municipalities outside of uh, Vancouver proper, beyond Boundary Road or south of the Fraser, yeah. these types of changes? Because the suburbs sometimes culturally can be different, a different view and perspective, never mind outside of Metro Vancouver. How do you think the totality of this housing plan will be accepted outside of, of uh, Boundary Road?
6: Well, I actually think that many of the surrounding municipalities, including Coquitlam, the city of North Vancouver, uh, Burnaby, will become quite accepting of many of these ideas. Where I suspect they'll be much more challenging is when you get into the smaller towns and communities around the province. And uh, I am sure a lot of those communities are not really excited about the prospect of seeing three or four homes on one single-family lot. And I'm not even sure if people will want to build in some of these uh, smaller communities. Mm -hmm. But in terms of Metro Vancouver, I think there is a growing sophistication, and uh, there could be quite a bit of take-up.
1: Well, it's going to be very interesting to watch. It is the issue of the moment, that's for sure. Michael, thank you for your time.
6: My pleasure.
1: Well, it's exam season at universities and colleges, and that can be perhaps the most stressful time of the year, as uh, school support centers are being deluged with requests for helping uh, for help from struggling students. Uh, in order to be successful at university, it's important to stay healthy during exam time. Of course, getting enough sleep, eating properly, and relaxing, uh, exercising—all those types of things. Joining me now to discuss exam season and the challenges of running a modern university is Dr. Deborah Soccier. She is. Uh, the President and Vice-Chancellor of Vancouver Island University based in Nanaimo. Dr. Saucier is an accomplished neuroscientist, educator and university administrator with a deep commitment to STEM and Indigenous education. I am just absolutely excited to have her on the show today. Thank you for joining us.
5: Oh, thank you so much, Jess, for having me here.
1: Yeah, I'm trying to think back and it's been way too long since I was in school uh, many, many decades ago now, but exam time can be incredibly stressful. Uh, Walk me through exam time in 2023, what it looks like for many students.
5: (laughs) Yeah, you know, So um, one of the things that we've learned over the last little while since I was in school and probably you too, Mm -hmm. is that actually saying that somebody has to know something on Thursday during these three hours may not be the best way to assess knowledge. Hmm. In fact, setting um, exams that are uh, more practical, more applied, uh, that can be taken home and worked on over time actually can provide more thoughtful results. That unfortunately doesn't make them less stressful. And so mm. we do see a, a bounce uh, in uh, mental health requests, primarily around anxiety, uh, exams, stress, nerves, that kind of thing at this time of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you gave great advice. Uh, I actually tell students to uh, put in their day timer, go exercise. If you don't plan it, you won't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, make sure that you eat healthy, all of those kinds of things. But again, uh, even with new techniques, still stressful, right? People yeah. are have. These students, uh, any students, don't want to fail. They they want to make their families proud. Mm-hmm. They want to achieve their dreams, uh, and it's high stakes, and so it is stressful.
1: Is it? Uh, can a student still uh, work part time and still carry a full course load with five classes? I often hear some students, the ones that live in Metro Vancouver, will take four, even three classes. Yeah. If, if it, it because of the stress, sometimes partially. It's just because of what they can afford, but. Is, can a student still take five classes, work part-time, and still have a student life as well?
5: Yeah, no. No, they can't. Hmm. Um, you know, uh, well, I mean, some can, of course they can. But mm-hmm. what I would say that uh, is, is an interesting stat is that the four-year degree now takes on average five years hmm. because so many of our students are working, but also probably unlike when you and I went to school Uh, many of our students have family commitments, either elder care or child care. Um, And then they may have family commitments towards family businesses, especially if they're first generation uh, Canadians who are are trying to balance that work-life balance. Mm -hmm. Um, So that makes it very challenging. And I, in fact, encourage students, if they can afford the time, to think about actually stretching it out a little bit longer uh, so that they actually have time for their life. Because their life isn't going to happen to them, you know, five years from now or four years years from now when they're done. Their life is happening to them right now. And if it's a really gorgeous day out, just go for a run mm-hmm. and actually, you know, don't sweat it so much. Um,
1: are you seeing an increase, um, a general increase in the older student? I mean, that's often said, you know, education doesn't just occur in those four years. It's a lifetime commitment. Uh, are you generally seeing older students, single parents? Are we seeing more of that in a university environment?
5: Um, it depends on the university and the topic being studied. But yes, uh, especially at Vancouver Island University, our students tend to be older. They don't tend to come directly from grade 12. They might take a gap year, which is incredibly popular with students these days. But they may have worked for a couple of years and then decided that they need to come back to get that credential so that they can get that next step in their career. Uh, Or they may have been out for 10, 12 years, and then they want to upgrade that credential again. Uh, And so we do see at VIU a lot of students who are older, who have family commitments, who work.
1: Uh, Talk to me a little bit about Vancouver Island University. I don't know much about it, and I think most residents, most people listening here, and I know we have listeners in Nanaimo as well, uh, give us some background on the university.
5: Mm -hmm. Well, we're about 15 years old, and uh, we offer everything from adult basic education and upgrading to uh, graduate degrees in an MBA, for instance, or uh, master's in community planning bachelor's degrees, diplomas, certificates. Uh, We also offer a wide variety of the trades. So we pretty much have something for everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, We are the only university north of the Malahat. Um, So again, uh, we have to, you know, sort of meet a wide variety of needs. As I heard in your last segment, there's a real need for skilled trades, but there's a real need for skilled anything these days. Mm -hmm. It is very hard to find people who have those kind of attributes and training uh, anywhere, not not to mentioned the 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 Mid Island.
1: Uh, you were named president in 2019. What has that been like? Because uh, you got hired, you got a huge amount of responsibility as president of a university, and then COVID hits.
5: Yeah. So that was a, uh, that was a wild ride. <laughs> um, all I can say is is that, you know, um, one of the things I didn't anticipate in my first year as the president was actually closing the university so that we could retool and go fully online. We went from having about 25, 30 percent of our classes offered in an online format to almost 100 uh, percent in a week. And and for that, I'm very grateful to our faculty for retooling everything. But that being said, we never actually went home either. Because we offer the trades, it's pretty hard to imagine training a welder if we don't actually let them try it out. Yes. Um, Or a nurse um, or any one of a number or science majors, et cetera, if they can't actually get in the lab. And so we never went home fully, but we did push almost all of our stuff online. That was tremendously... Exciting, scary, uh, nerve wracking, um, but you know we learned an awful lot through that period too. Yeah, um,
1: are there things that you've kept? Is the online even more pronounced now? Or I mean, it, it, there are things, of course. Tech COVID has sped up a lot of trends in society. What things, are you keeping any specific programs or the way you do things specific to COVID today?
5: Well, you know, one of the things that I think we did learn in COVID more than anything was that we could be more flexible with our students and that it wouldn't break anything. Uh-huh. Uh, I think too often we get wedded to our own ideas. And in fact, we learned that for a number of reasons, we had to be able to be more flexible with uh, deadlines and things like that. And, and strangely, the university didn't end. Um, but, you know, you know, most of the things that we learned were things that we noticed during the time when we were all online, and that is the need for human connection. Uh, you know, we we serve a demographic typically in university of 18 to 23, and that's the age where you're making the friends you're going to have for the rest of your life. That need for human connection to tell your story, to explore things, to do Dumb stuff. Yes. <laughs> um, all of that is part of that age group, and all of that is better when you're in person. And so, what we're seeing is this real desire in our students to connect personally, face to face with each other. Now, sometimes I do see them sitting there texting to each other while they're sitting beside each other,
1: mm-hmm. but
5: again, they really desire that human connection.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, final question for you because we're covering this mm-hmm. uh, at the five thirty hour. Uh, uh, Elon Musk, uh, along with uh, many academics, are saying let's put a pause on artificial intelligence. Chat GPT would be m- the most probably mainstream of argument uh, or, as an example. Uh, my son was just signing up for a summer class, and one of the things they put in the thought is that you know students are banned from using Chat GPT and other artificial intelligence for a- exams and essays and stuff like that. Um, are, do you worry about artificial intelligence in regards to an educate, as an educational institution? Because you know the, the idea of telling a, a, a machine to write an essay is, is, is right there and you can do it fully cited, everything, right? Uh, And it's not just the educational institution. Do you worry about that as an educator, as a president of a university, what chat GPT and other artificial intelligence could do to the traditional term paper?
5: Yeah, you know, sure. I mean, there's always the potential for something really, you know, Terminator style for the education system to happen. But I actually think you could flip it on its head and use it as a tool to be really creative and to hand your students a fully formed paper, from use AI yourself, right? Flip it on its head and then get them to go and see whether or not those resources actually said that and then say whether or not that was a good paper, grade it and give it back because I never have learned so much as when I had to teach it and when you have to come up with a grade for somebody and justify that grade... That's actual learning. Yeah. And, and so you can be creative with this too. And so I'm a glass half full person and, <laughs> and so is our university, I guess. And so I just look at this as an opportunity to do something really creative and different. Yeah, uh,
1: Dr. Sosie, thank you for your time today.
5: Oh, well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Yeah,
1: likewise. Recently, Elon Musk and a group of artificial intelligence experts and industry executives called for a six-month pause in developing systems more powerful than the OpenAI newly launched GPT-4. It was an open letter signed by many executives, academics as well, concerned about the impact of open artificial intelligence and what the impact it could have on our entire information system. Uh, Many have been concerned, academics included as well, uh, and many of them certainly said, let's wait a while. The letter wasn't perfect, that the spirit is right, that we need to slow down until we better understand the ramifications of uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, And many have said that the big players already that are involved are being increasingly secretive of what they are doing. Joining me now to talk a little bit about the impact of open AI and what we've been seeing in society already is Andy Burrard, a tech and digital lifestyle expert at HandyAndyMedia.com. Andy, thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Jan. So I know Elon Musk, uh, you know, he's a polarizing figure, but what do you think about this letter? It's an open letter, uh, but that we need to really slow down
7: our move towards uh, open AI. What are your thoughts? Well, just let's, let's look at ChatGPT, for example. That came out in November of 2022, and it just seems like it's been a big part of our lives ever since. It has just exploded and it's changing society so fast in fact that with chat gpt4 is about five times bigger than what chat gpt3 was and what they expect uh, jazz is by the end of the year when we get to chat gpt5 we might actually reach agi which is artificial general intelligence because if you've ever used chat gpt you know you still have to use these prompts and to get um, some type of response from it But what if the AI could actually create its own prompts for itself? And I think that's what artificial general intelligence really is. And that's what's got a lot of these experts worried because humanity might be at stake when this thing can actually run itself and we don't have the parameters to know what its exact intent is uh, in doing so.
1: We had um, um, Dr. Sosie on uh, at 5 o'clock. Uh, she is the, uh, the president of Vancouver Island University, Dr. Deborah Sosie, and we were talking a little bit about the impact of technology and and uh, especially our artificial intelligence. Um, I was giving her an example of my 14-year-old son who signed up uh, for a summer class, and one of the things I noticed uh, when you're filling out the forms is to telling students you can't use chat GPT or any other artificial Intelligence for uh, you know for essays and things of that sort, but the ramifications are so profound uh, in regards to not just our media, what we consume, and the educational um, uh, environment, law. Uh, I mean, it, there there isn't there isn't going to be one industry, certainly white collar jobs that won't be impacted by
7: AI. Yes, and the biggest job right now in tech, jazz. Is uh, prompt engineers, and basically that is you just work with the AI, and you're you're prompting the responses and just like you mentioned every industry is trying to hire these prompt engineers so for example a law office might hire one just to create a, a library of prompts so that they know where they can get this information when when they need to because it's so new right now that we can't really figure out like what it's what it can actually do so you have to keep trying with it and that's the biggest job and the great thing about this new job is you don't need any technical language all you have to know is english and an understanding of these ais so both healthcare law uh, any kind of industry you name it is taking advantage of ai right now but again it is so new it's going so fast mm-hmm. like if you look at midjourney which is the ai that does text prompts to to create actual images version 5 of midjourney is is almost photorealistic you can't even tell that that is a fake photo and so when we think about misinformation you know and how much that's going to affect that as well I, the, I i do agree that we need to pause i just don't know if 6 months is going to be enough i think this should have been done about five, six years ago because now the cat's out of the bag and we're just trying to contain it. And these companies are trying to make money and that's going to stop a lot of them from putting the brakes on, on AI.
1: And that's where I get concerned. We we didn't slow down these social media companies and now our young people in some ways are addicted. Our news yeah. uh, ecosystem has been turned upside down, not for the better in my opinion. Uh, huge impact to these social media companies. Then you go to the Googles of the world, even Facebook to a certain degree, the amount of Information that they have, TikTok as well, that they use uh, against us and selling and our data that they now own. So we've already seen the pro- problem manifest itself uh, through uh, our data and, and through our children using social media. Now with AI, it goes uh, a lot further. I was just thinking about when you're talking about the, the photograph, I saw a picture of Boris Johnson, the former prime minister of the UK. Uh, there is an AI generated photo just you give it some parameters and they wanted to show police arresting uh, Boris Johnson. And I, I saw the picture. It was digital. It was clear. And if you push that out on Twitter or social media and say, look, Prime Minister's just been arrested. Well, you would think it is just based on the photos that you're seeing. And it—and it's not true whatsoever. Um, and, and, I, and for me, it hit home, actually, of all things. And I've, I've found a, a radio a GPT, it's called. And basically, what this machine does is it plays disc jockey. And it's an online radio station. And the disc jockey is a machine, and they just scour 250,000 pieces of online social media to get information on artists, the local weather, and this person becomes a disc jockey throwing to conventional music. So there is no need for disc jockeys anymore in a lot of these smaller markets. So, I mean, the
7: question is, where does this end? And I don't think anybody knows. Well, where when do we have the AI talk show host on radio? Uh, oh, it's cats? coming. I, I can I, see it. I, well, I just just to give an example, I saw a movie trailer. Uh-huh. Everything was created by AI. The music, the script, every single scene was created by an AI machine. and it kind you know, you could kind of see it looked a little wonky, but like they just created this technology. And what you were saying about the photos, that company midjourney, mm-hmm. it's only one year old. There's only eleven people in that in that company. And think of how much they're, they're changing society. So the, the, the fact is, Mid Journey stopped their free trials because people were abusing it. They entered the Chinese market and it's part of the parameters, Jazz. You can't do any political satire. You can't take the president, Xi Jinping, and, and do a political satire photo of him and that's how they got into china so they're really making the rules as they go just and like you said with the social media companies we asked them to be the moderators of themselves and we saw how that worked out so i think the same thing is happening now with these ai companies
1: well i mean it's we can laugh about um you know boris johnson being arrested it's it's mischievous it's it's satire whatever it may be but put that in the hands of vladimir putin and what's happening in ukraine and it gets incredibly dangerous a flashpoint in one of these areas where things are very tense and all it takes is one picture and you can manipulate people and it can instigate conflict. And, and that's the challenge. And you, and you can add it in many other parts of the world. And that's very, very scary. So uh, I didn't say I'd ever say this, but I kind of agree with Elon Musk. And so I hope I hope yeah. there's something somewhere along the way government wakes up to this because it's going to take legislation, that's for sure. Andy, thanks for your time. Thanks, Chaz.